Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Jolly Podcast. I'm your host, Melissa Barrett. This podcast is for those who are interested in the conversation around diversity, inclusion, and equity. Each week, I'll be interviewing a guest who has something special to share or is actively part of building solutions in this space. Let's get started. Douglas C. Freeman is the president of the Global Reflections and Inclusive Leadership Practice, the Diversity and Inclusion Division at Uniworld Group, Incorporated, a global multicultural communication and advertising firm. Global Reflections is a sophisticated line of client offerings that provide corporations with a deep portfolio of holistic diversity and inclusion best practices customized to the client's specific business needs. Mr. Freeman and UWG have completed diversity and inclusion projects for some of the world's leading organizations from Disney and Major League Baseball to Morgan Stanley and the European Union Commission in Brussels. Mr. Freeman and UWG have completed diversity and inclusion projects for some of the world's leading organizations, from Disney and Major League Baseball to Morgan Stanley and the European Union Commission in Brussels. Mr. Freeman has served as Vice Chairman of the United Nations Gender Equality Experts Panel, was named a 40 Under 40 Business Leader by the New York City Network Journal, and is a former board trustee of Georgetown College, U.S. educational partner of Regents Park College, Oxford University, and he recently served on the Dean's Alumni Leadership Council at the JFK School of Government, Harvard University. He holds a master's in public policy degree from the John F. Kennedy School at Harvard University, an MBA essentials credential from the London School of Economics, along with a Bachelor of Arts from the University of California at Berkeley. He attended Harvard University on a Woodrow Wilson Fellowship, completed his graduate degree focused on international trade and finance, and received top grade for his master's thesis work. He is a two-time British Columbia under-19 rugby all-star, two-time Canadian universities all-Canadian, and was selected for the Canada under-21 team as a rugby all-star. 
He is the son of Emmy Award-winning conductor maestro Paul Freeman, the first African-American to lead a Canadian symphony orchestra. Please join me in welcoming Doug Freeman. All right. Well, this week, I am so excited to have Doug Freeman here with me from UWG. And before we start, I just, I want to publicly thank you for being so, so very supportive of so many people. But for me personally, because I, I mean, you are such a mentor to others. You truly walk the walk and lift as you climb. So I really want to thank you for your encouragement. You're certainly one of the reasons that I'm so interested in this work. And you not only understand, you know, kind of the, your own ability to use your wisdom, but the power of your own network. So I just want to thank you for what you've done um, for me and for what you do for everyone else around the world regarding DEI and the environmental, social, and governance aspects of it. So thank you. And we will celebrate you today, Doug. Oh, that's very kind, uh, Melissa. <laughs> Such an opportunity and uh, good blessings to be here. Uh, so thank you so much for inviting me. Yeah, no. So one of the things I usually start out with is just, mm -hmm. can you give us a flavor for how you started out? Because I know you've been doing DEI probably longer than people have been saying DEI. <laughs> or <laughs> yes. It's been a while. So I guess they could say I've had a bit of a circuitous route, uh, some zigs and some zags, but I've uh, been very fortunate throughout. I started out uh, as an undergrad. I started out initially on the East Coast and uh, ultimately transferred and finished my degree locally in the Bay Area at uh, Cal. And I was a poli-sci major and economics minor. With that degree, I went to New York City. A friend of mine uh, was at NYU Law School, and I visited him and was very impressed by the city and the vibrance, the diversity, the culture, the global nature of New York. And I just wanted to experience for a summer. And at the time, uh, I had the opportunity to work at what's now Verizon. It was the local 9X telephone company. And uh, one of my bosses uh, referred me into my next job, which is at in investment banking at an organization called Chase Security. Uh, that is now J.P. Morgan Chase. And I worked in turnaround uh, investment banking for organizations that were in dire straits. And a fair amount of work needed to be done to pull them out or at least to gather whatever assets could be gathered uh, from those organizations. Uh, from there, I went to public policy school. I didn't go to business school. I was fortunate enough to have a fellowship. And I went to government school uh, in, in the Boston area. And then I got a master in public policy, came back to New York. And I switched over to consulting. I worked in Deloitte Consulting Strategy Group, focused on communications and media. And uh, at the time, I was going on that uh, first wave of internet companies in the late 90s. And one of my colleagues was a uh, from graduate school, was a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford, and he started an internet company in England. 
and he set up an office in New York. So I had the opportunity to move from Deloitte uh, to this internet company uh, in my late twenties. And uh, of course I knew nothing about what I was doing <laughs> in sales and business development. So I had to learn very quickly. Uh, there are four of us running an office of four to six when I started. And within six months, there were over 70 of us in the same New York office. So we grew very rapidly. Of course, March 2000 hit and the internet bubble burst. We were very fortunate to actually raise funds in Europe. And uh, that allowed us to continue operations. They closed after that fundraise, they closed the New York office. Uh, so that, that ended that sort of, I want to say, first wave of my career and started me on a second wave. And after that, I didn't want to go back to consulting or banking. Um, I wanted to try something on my own. And a, a good colleague of yours, Melissa, the, Linda McGee, I met a, a trade show, and one of the biggest trade shows. And I reached out to her and I, I told her I'd be in the Bay Area. And I thought there were some, you know, she had some strategic business issues to discuss. And uh, we were able to spend a considerable amount of time together. And she was kind enough to give me a, a consulting engagement. And I worked on an e-commerce strategy report for Visa around B2B e-commerce portals and uh, the possibility of Visa actually making a considerable investment in one of those portals. And what's the competitive landscape and analysis and financial forecasts and ultimately the recommendation, given the treacherous nature of March 2000, a whole host of other factors, was to not proceed. And that would have been an eight-figure investment Visa was looking at. And of course, that was the right call at the time. I think I got a little bit of credibility from that and uh, continued to work with Linda and the Visa team over multiple years. So I'll stop there. That's, that's, wow. Yeah. Well. And fast forward to now you are the president of the Reflections mm -hmm. Practice at UWG, which is the, the longest standing multicultural marketing agency in the Correct. country. And I love the fact that you all call it the Reflections Practice yeah. because it, it just, you know, it's like looking in a mirror, mm -hmm. I guess, you know, when you're really exposing where everyone is on kind of the DEI spectrum. Right. So, I mean, you know, how do, I know you speak to chief diversity officers and CEOs all the time, and everybody's kind of in a different place when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion, belonging, you know, how does someone get started? How does a company really kind of get started? What, what's Excellent. your kind of advice to them? You know, uh, we have, as we can imagine, had a lot of companies that have gotten started, particularly in this last 18 to 24 months. And there's been a lot of pressure as well to get started from internal forces and external. And so, you know, for a while we had to reflect on practice, Melissa, for that very question, because how you start will dictate, believe it or not, how you finish. And and the more important thing is not how you finish, but how you, if you finish effectively and you reach your objective. So we wanted to provide a simple formula for people 
so that they can have comfort in knowing what to do in that situation anywhere in the world, any size, any organization. And we call that the three A's as an apple. And the first A is around assessment. You really need to determine and get baselines using your organizational data and other data points. Where is your organization around diversity, inclusion of talent, culture and marketplace and supply chain, uh, community and philanthropic investments, stakeholder engagement? Where do you really stand and get data to lay out where you stand, not conjecture, opinion, but heavy quantitative and qualitative data points. From that analysis and data collection and baselining, you'll be able to prioritize your top actions, right? Because what really has transpired for the bulk, if not the heavy majority of organizations in the last 24 months is that they didn't do the assessment. They went straight to action. They just started councils or ENRGs. And they didn't build a strategy and they didn't have any data supporting that strategy. And so it was based on conjecture and opinion and gut feel. And unfortunately for diversity, that cannot be the driver because everybody's got conjecture, opinion, and gut feel. And there's no real compass to guide you to what to do and what can be the most effective and what can be the most efficient utilization of your resources and time. And as a result, when you're in action mode and nothing else, and you're doing a bunch of activities over a year or two, people get frustrated, and that's what's happening. You have diversity councils and ERGs that have had 80% drop-off since mid-last year. So that's the second A, action. The third A is accountability. You need to have accountability related to those actions. It's not just metrics accountability. You need to be able to show as an organization that you're committed to diversity through thick and thin, through restructurings and the bad times, as well as the good. The strength of an accountable organization around diversity is that when things are tough, diversity does not go by the wayside. It is not the first thing cut. In fact, it is usually kept or expanded because people have done well around it. So uh, those three A's are really where what we used as foundations for people's strategic direction. That's fantastic. So, and and clearly, you know, how you start out with that assessment, if it's not deep enough, if it's not broad enough, it, you know, it I I connect the dots to what your effectiveness rate is going to be. So, and then in terms of UWG because I do feel like having gotten to know you a little bit UWG has a little bit of a different perspective that you bring to the table when you think about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Because I think a lot of companies feel like this is an extra cost center. And you really bring in a perspective in terms of being able to craft opportunities from the DEI work. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So... When, when we do our assessment work, you're absolutely right around the data. There are typically one to two types of standard data for assessment. One is your organizational data, right? That's employee engagement surveys and focus groups and interviews and exit data and HR metrics, turnover data, recruitment data, performance evaluations, 
and a whole host of other areas that you utilize and you compare and contrast based on different demographic categories. If you see that your Latina female, your Latina category or Latin female category has a 30% turnover rate and the rest of your organization only has 10 with a delta of 20, 20 percentage points, you know that there's a fundamental breakdown. So that's why we compare and contrast our demographic areas across the data to see if there are disparities or differences that are gaps, that are strategic challenges that need to be addressed and have real business impact. The second layer of data is best practices. So that can be acquired from, you know, all sorts of organizations, all sorts of associations, particularly around diversity and inclusion, diversity and research. So the acquisition of practices to be aware of what practices are around recruiting and what are they around retention and development and a whole host of other areas. And then as you move to the third area, the big differentiator is the business data, what we call diversity ROI data. We look for missed, a subset of missed business opportunities called missed diversity business opportunities. And those are called blind spots. And the idea is to identify, quantify, and monetize those blind spots for real monetary impact and bottom line impact. So you get three tiers of data in most organizations and their business strategies, if they even do them, you'd get one, maximum two tiers. Wow, that is dropping some knowledge right there in terms of, <laughs> of the assessments. I love that. And then, you know, to take that process a little bit further, because I know you, you all focus also on kind of ESG and the environment and social impacts. Are there things that companies can think about when they're looking at DEI as a function of, you know, sustainability and social impact? Are there ways to bring those things together so that they're not, you know, essentially so disparate, I think, in people's minds? Yeah, so there are a few of these models. You're absolutely right. Oftentimes, the largest, I guess, group of kind of configurations are around separate silos. So there's an ESG department, and they focus on their activities. And then there's a diversity department. The second one is a hybrid of the two, where diversity is the overall department and ESG is housed within it. The third one is the opposite, where ESG is the overall department and diversity is housed within ESG. And we've seen organizations with all three models. And so part of the the first level of discussion is to figure out which model either is currently in place or makes the most sense uh, for the organization. And then you have to put, you have to figure out why one model has more merit in your organization versus another. Sometimes it's like, oh, ESG has been around for 10 years, diversity is brand new, or, or vice versa. The bulk of our relationships are in diversity. So, of course, we have diversity as a lead in ESG secondarily. So, you, you really have to look at the history of the organization to determine which of the three models is likely the best fit or is the current model and why that is the case. And then sometimes you're going to have to adjust the model with the times because ESG 
from an investor perspective, is the hottest category of investing. So even if you have ESG underneath diversity, you may strategically decide that that's got to flip because they want to see the ESG moniker as a lead, not the diversity one, and diversity can support the efforts of ESG. Interesting. So then, because I do think that in some cases, people feel like they can hire a consultant and it's very cookie cutter. They come in, they tell you what you need to be doing, and this is how it should work in your organization. But you're kind of saying, no, it's not a one-size-fits-all. You really have to understand what the culture is like, what the company is like, how they exist today so that you can really develop more of a Mm -hmm. long-term plan. So how for people out there that have been, you know, kind of having the focus or maybe the light went on 18 months ago or and they started to to say this is what they wanted to do. And now I think there's a lot of frustration with, you know, not having results to report or not enough results or so are there things that you think that we should be looking at as a. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. as a community, if you will, to to try and make sure that people don't get that fatigue when it comes to I mean, the work is is long, Absolutely. right? This is not a short play. So what kind of things can you do to help folks stay motivated? So you have to, first of all, frame the journey. It's going to be a journey, but we have a framing of it, a maturity model which we describe as diversity 5.0. A 1.0 universe is the universe of compliance, policies, practices, procedures, standard uh, diversity demographics like EEO data. And oftentimes that universe is very sorely behind in an organization. So work has to be done there. There are gaps there and you identify them and you address them. 2.0 universe is the workforce and the workplace. And that's where arguably the bulk of organizations have and are currently focused. And the 3.0 universe is a marketplace. It's customers and clients, communities, uh, supply chain, supplier diversity activities, philanthropy, and the like. One to three is really where 90%, 90, 95% of the companies that we work with and that we're aware of are kind of in that ballpark. 4.0 4.0 is innovation, leveraging diversity of thought, and there are different diversity you know, innovations for business process, services, products, decision-making, innovation. Um, all of those areas are critical when you're looking at diversity 4.0. And then 5.0 is, is a big milestone. We want to get to that because it's business integration. Diversity is integrated in the DNI of everything you do at the board level, senior exec, new managers, and individual contributors. And that's not where the fun ends or the diversity strategy and work ends. It's where it begins because 5.0 is a continuous improvement model. And so the organization is continuously improving and gaining competitive advantage over its direct competitors. Now, the second part of the framing is around what's going on for the length of the diversity initiative for impact. 
diversity initiatives should be bare minimum three years project, project plan, more realistically five years. So most of our clients we describe as their plans as diversity, 20, diversity transformation 2025, so diversity 2025, looking four or five years out with specific is around each year, you know, your first year is your, your data collection and building what we call the DEI business plan. Your second year is some pilots and low-hanging fruit. Uh, your third year is infrastructure and rollout. Uh, your fourth year is permit evaluation. And your fifth year is moving into that integration model. Wow, that's awesome. <laughs> awesome, awesome. Love it. Let's pause for a moment. We'll be right back. So then, so just to kind of flip the script a little bit, because I know as you introduced yourself and went through your journey and how you are focused today, and you and and truly your journey has not been specifically United States focus. Mm -hmm. You actually do a lot globally in terms of, you, you know, the network and the mentorship and the teaching and all of those things. Are there lessons that you see that we can learn from the global stage versus mm -hmm. the United States itself? Yeah, so um, there is another model which is very important from a global diversity perspective as you know all of our organizations are dramatic seeing impact from the shifting demographics and we take this model from the european union it's called the six strands of diversity and it starts with age gender disability religion sexual orientation and race ethnicity and immigration status and with that tool, you can start to go into the country and see what matters most. So in France, it would probably be women and LGBTQ+, and then that immigration piece, probably third. Yeah, that's, that seems really interesting as well, because it's almost like when you have different countries or, you know, even different companies, they can be focused or their priorities may be different based on where they are where they do business yes. and and how they relate to the engagement of not only their employees, but their, their customers. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's really an interesting and, you know, with even the George Floyd murder, we saw worldwide, you know, support for really focusing on so many different stories and right. providing space for people. Mm-hmm. So being as a person, I know when you went through this process yes. and your journey, you you uh, distinctively missed the entire portion of your rugby life <laughs> and uh, the rugby champion that you are. So I wonder if I mean, do you do you pull anything from your uh, your time in rugby for some of this? Yeah. That's a really good question, and I, I give you so much credit because, Melissa, you go above and beyond. <laughs> uh, that's the first time I've ever been asked 
question about that in my professional working career. So I thank you for that question. Yeah, to put some context around that, I was almost like an army brat. My parents were classically trained musicians. And uh, I was born in Dallas, Texas. When I was one, moved to Detroit, Michigan. My dad was with the Dallas Symphony. And the Detroit Symphony, in his first break, was on the west coast of Canada in Victoria, British Columbia. It was the Victoria Symphony. So I was in Victoria from 9 to 18. My formative years in particular high school. And uh, from gosh, six, uh, almost six through 12 was one year off due to having a broken wrist. I played throughout and I didn't just play in high school. You know, some people play in club teams. I was selected, fortunately, in my 11th grade year to play on the province. So that'd be like your state, this would be the state all-star team as a junior all-star for the state in that sport of rugby. And I played in the Canadian uh, junior championships. I played when I was 17, 18, and when I was a freshman at 19 years old. And I had the good fortune to start the whole time and the good fortune to uh, be a champion in each case. So I learned a lot. You know, I, I think I learned a very strong business and focal kind of mentality. Um, when we were, uh, we, we took the approach much more of the New York Yankees things where this was a business trip. We didn't mess around. We were there to, uh, be the best. And so some of the, when you have that focus and you have that, you know, I learned that business mentality on that team. And I think, uh, ultimately there are a whole host of, of, um, team dynamics and learning to work with people from very diverse backgrounds uh, mm-hmm. that are very transferable. You know, those are the soft skills. Like how do we, how do we uh, talk to each other at lunch? Right? Yes. Or on a three hour, four hour, five hour bus. You know, um, and do we just sit with the same people? Do we mingle a bit? Uh, do we stay cliquey or does the group kind of engage with each other? So there are a lot of the, what they describe as the, you know, what are now many of the skills we suggest in inclusive leaders, leading with empathy, putting oneself in another's shoes, uh, not having unconscious biases with people, uh, really communicating effectively. You know, people, there are a lot of kids from rural areas, some kids from public schools, private schools, big schools, small schools, big city, little city. So you're going to have to deal with that and engage people effectively and be perceptive to understand that people need to be engaged in different ways. So I think, you know, there were some lessons learned throughout that process. For sure. Wow, that's phenomenal. And, and you know, it's funny that you bring that up because for me, I felt like an army brat because my dad worked for Xerox and he was into marketing way back when. I don't know if you remember that commercial, It's a Miracle um, with Xerox. That was like, that was his campaign. It was like so crazy to me back then. But we moved every 18 months because of the way that he, you know, moved and developed in the company. And at the time, of course, when you're a child, you don't like moving around and meeting new people every 18 months. But now it does make I notice the difference in the soft skills of being able to communicate 
and connect with people, which is truly a skill. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, you want people to feel comfortable, to feel connected and safe when mm-hmm. you're having a conversation, whether it's on a business or personal level. Mm-hmm. So I love the fact that you you bring that up. And especially in the United States where we may not hear so much about rugby, right. but, uh, <laughs> <Absolutely>. but, <laughs> but it's such a, a great sport for, you know, trying to understand how, um, people work with each other yes. um, and really get to know each other as they go. Yes, so that's phenomenal. So in, I know you are such a busy person, but um, I want to make sure that I also ask you a question about kind of your most impactful advice. You kind of, I know you grew up in a family mm-hmm. of people that did things first mm-hmm. and you tend to have that mentality of, you know, being the best, whether you're the first or not, and being the first can be challenging, knowing that there's a lot of firsts coming out, especially for companies, you know, you might be the first this or the first that. Is there something you can kind of give us in terms of, you know, how can we channel that energy to be as impactful as possible? Well, I, I, you know, timing is that question is also aptly timed, Melissa, because I um, career wise, um, you know, you have to do what you do well and you have to find out what you love uh, in order to do that well. And I found that uh, providing advice around diversity, equity, inclusion has been uh, the most fun I've had in business, I'll say to date, but a few years ago, I knew I had, you mentioned rugby. I have a passion for sports. I'm a, what one would call a sports fanatic. I, I love all types of sports. I watch a lot of sports and I believe in the power. It, it, sports truly is the most globally impactful and positive tool of unification in societies around the world. And it brings the world's societies together in healthy competition. You look at soccer in the World Cup and the love of country, but in the love of people celebrating the joy that comes from sports. And so I, a couple of years ago, looked with a couple of colleagues, you know, we're not wealthiest people, we call ourselves penny ballers. <laughs> <laughs> we have tremendous aspirations, but we can only afford what we can afford. And we looked at uh, you know things like minor league baseball teams, and we're fortunate enough to come across through a sports broker an indoor football league team, an arena football team in the Panhandle of Texas. My colleague and I, Max, went down to this location in you know Texas, about three hours northwest of Dallas and town of about 300,000 people, arena of about 5,000 people, like a hockey arena. And the game is played in a hockey rink style, 200 by 85 feet. In football terms, about half the size, about 50 yards instead of 100. And we sat down at the, 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 the ground level right next to the Melissa. I've seen a lot of sports. This was arguably by far 
the most exciting sports. It's like hockey without the skates. These men are so fast. They're flying and they're hitting and they hit so hard, they'll fly over the arena edge under the ground and the fans will put them up and then put them back in. And, and it's intimate and it's driven by families. All these kids and families just having a blast. It's affordable entertainment. And my colleague and I, you know, coming from a larger city said, my goodness, I think we have to figure out a way to get into this. The world has to see this. And so uh, we tried, we, you know, everything, we're still business folks and it's all about the numbers. We love the business model, but the numbers didn't work out. So uh, flash forward from 2019 to the present, an opportunity came about where that same team was not going to play in their league. I will make a caveat that I did make a very small investment in the, I mentioned Canada. There was a pro uh, national uh, league, Canadian Premier League opened up and I invested in an equity share, but I learned the business of sports from those folks. And that organization and that league had a $200 million media rights deal. The media rights are very critical for the revenue component of a strong league. And the organization that consulted them, uh, we hired ultimately. And so Flash forward to June of this year, we launched something called the AFA, the Arena Football Association. We took five teams in Texas. We played in June and July. We're proud to say we completed every game, despite half, one team had half their players wiped out due to COVID. We still got through it. We used um, national media, our consultants got us a national media rights deal with a great specialist uh, sports organization called Flow Sports, a big streaming you know, millions of subscribers on their platform. And uh, so we had that national media rights deal with other, there were four or five other leagues and only one of them had a national media rights deal and we did it out the gate. Uh, we were uh, sponsored by a big national brand, uh, which very few other leagues had. And we had artificial intelligence production cameras that we imported from Israel. So, uh, you know, state of the art and creative standardization of the video feed to our audiences. So we had a wild, and we didn't announce this league. And there was a reason, Melissa. A lot of even friends and family said, well, for those of you who are in the sports world that know the story of the AAF, which was a very uh, hyped up, uh, the Ebersol family started that. And that failed mid-season. And the XFL just came out and that failed. And the AFL failed two years ago and went bankrupt. So the question was, if all these leagues with all this money and all these minds, and I heard the term, a lot of smart people have worked on this, what makes you think your league in a pandemic <laughs> right. will work? So we said, yeah. We'll just do it. Well, that's in the power of innovation, right? Those diverse minds coming together. minds coming together, right? <laughs> a different set of eyes. Right. A diversity of thought occurred in this really a rural area. This different kind of lens came on this league and identified opportunity. That is diversity 4.0 that occurred. Yes. So yes. The first. So now you can see a lesson learned. The first thing you can do as an entrepreneur is figure out some kind of diversity 4.0 model lens or otherwise. 
that will yield some kind of great business opportunity for you. We don't know where, how, but you leverage diversity 4.0, diversity of thought on a business situation to see what kind of innovation you come up with. That's the first I love it. The second uh, uh, lesson learned from that approach is do your homework, right? We didn't move. We were excited, right? We could have been emotive and purchased something. Guess what? We would have purchased a team that would have gone into the pandemic because we had sober thought, great due diligence, driven analysis. We came to a rational and sober conclusion not to purchase a team. All right? Do your homework. Base your decisions, particularly critical, on data. And I, know, I, I, I know people love their gut. Don't do it. We don't do decisions on our guts. I'm just going to tell you, <laughs> never. Yeah. Who knows what the outcome could that be? Oh, my gut says this. Well, it might say something tomorrow. No offense to the gut people out there. A lot of billionaires of the, we don't do gut. Yeah. Oh, maybe it's because we are black entrepreneurs and we've got to do data. So particularly for entrepreneurs of color, don't live on what people tell you or hopes and dreams. Data first, due diligence, data, homework and research. So that's the second lesson learned. Leverage those pieces to make a great business decision. And we made a great business in 2019 and that is not to buy. (laughs) Right? The third piece is, well, if the business model, particularly not to buy, isn't right, buy the model, right? Don't be afraid. We changed the business model. We said, you know what? We don't want a team. We want to build the league. Because the business model of the team was a profit model. We learned how to not lose money with teams, but we said, that's not the value. The value is scaling that to national leagues. So the AFA is built on a world-class business model that leverages and focuses on tier two markets or markets of 200,000 to usually a million that can yield profitability from day one. Wow. Okay. What? That's, that's incredible. I mean, just the amount of practical knowledge that that example brought is, is amazing. So, and and I'm going to repeat it. If you don't like the business model, change the model. (laughs) I love it. I love it. Change the model. And so, now to the reality, then the fourth piece, quietly implement it. Do not listen to people telling you what you can or you can do. This is your model. You can do whatever you want. Okay. Don't ever listen to people say, well, if we listen and say, Vincent Mann didn't do it with 275 million. So why would he even bother? We wouldn't have launched the league. But what we did say is, we will launch it quietly on our own. Get a, we had a bunch of lessons learned and we'll reflect and evaluate 
and consider next steps to announce it. So that's the fourth thing. Implement it, prototype it, run it, operate it, whatever that business is, get the quirks out before you really push it out to market. So the real thing is pilot your idea for real. Even yeah. no matter how small or how big, just pilot it. Just get it out there. See it. Do not let it sit in the idea phase. Pilot it out. The fifth piece is if that pilot works, scale the living daylights. And so November 4th, uh, we will be, uh, I will be announcing the league to the world at a big summit uh, presented by AARP and JP Morgan Chase. And we'll be announcing the league and it's uh, 2022 season, which will have eight teams. And our goal by 2030 is to have 100 teams in eight major territories and division across the United States with the ultimate goal and vision as follows, which is to be a big six sports league. So big six means there's AFA, Marine Football Association, MLS, NFL, MLB, NHL, NBA. One of the big six, but here's a catch, Melissa. We're built with diversity at the core of the institution. No big six sports league has been built with diversity. And what we mean by that is right now, Melissa, 87% of our owners are either women or people of color. Wow. 7%. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Absolutely. Coaches, female coaches, we're going to have referees in wheelchairs or who may not have their full legs, right? Or some disability that's prevented them to participate in other leagues. They will be very much participating in our diverse suppliers stakeholders, a whole host of areas that will create access and we will create far more jobs, particularly for black males. We will not have commoditized models where black males come in and they're used and abused, paid a few bucks and gone, and then they're bankrupt. It's just 77% of the NFL players. Our league is a league for life. Our players out the gate will provide be provided with career counseling. They'll provide jobs, coaches, mentors, so that they are successful on and off the field during their stint in the league, and they will be successful contributors and model ambassadors as alumni of the league. Wow! Congratulations. Okay. That is so exciting, yeah. and there's so many. I mean, I think whoever's listening, you're going to have to come back and listen to it again and again because there's there's so much that you just gave us in all of that um, in terms of just helping people feel not only like they have access, mm-hmm. but that they have a pathway for their future right. development, retention. There, there's just so many nuggets in, you know, belonging and making sure that people have that ability to feel like they can take part 
in all aspects of their humanness. Yes. So I thank you for that tremendous example. And I'm so looking forward to hearing more about it as you all launch and amplify your voices. What a, a wonderful way to close this incredible conversation. And again, I want to just thank you, Doug, for coming on and sharing the treasure troves of wisdom that you bring as we really just develop a whole new world as we think it. So thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you, Melissa. What a treat and honor. And I'm just so uh, thankful to have this opportunity. Um, You've done an extraordinary job of bringing in, I know, a diversity of, of different personalities and backgrounds. Um, if there's any way I can be uh, helpful and supportive or, or to return back would be fantastic. Uh, I'm here to serve. Thank you so much. If you're enjoying this episode, go back and listen to Monique Nelson, the CEO of UWG in season one. Thanks for joining me on the Jolly Podcast. Please subscribe so you won't miss an episode. See you next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.